Turn this morning with me to the first chapter of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. I want to read with you the first eight verses. As you know, we've done a little intro of the book and then looked at the first two verses last time I was here with you. And so now I want to look at verses 3 to 8, but I want to read the uh, first eight verses for the whole context. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I wonder what comes into your mind when you think of the word fellowship. Fellowship. How do you understand that concept? What do you think of when you think of fellowship? Maybe we think of a fun time with Christian friends or interesting and inspiring conversations. Maybe we think of common interests that we have with somebody. I have fellowship with this person. We might think about sharing a meal or having a snack with somebody and talking. How about the, the time of a church service or a Bible study where there's a break in the teaching or the teaching is over and then everybody just kind of gets to hang out? That's a fellowship time, right? And we say things like, oh, we had some really good fellowship at Bible study on Friday night. Well, whatever we think about fellowship, I think that we can all agree that Paul and the Philippians had it. They knew what it was, and they enjoyed it with each other. I mean, even as I read that opening passage, if you're like me, those words, I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I have you in my heart. They tap into your soul's longing for that kind of experience with other believers. We all wish that we had those experiences, those deep, meaningful, substantial relationships with our brothers and sisters here at Grace Church and at Grace Life as well. We want to click with people. We want that to just naturally meld and be smooth together. We, we want to click, and not just about superficial things like what movies we like or what sports teams we root for, but about things that really, truly matter. We want the kind of Christian relationships that cause us to well up in the kind of, of joy, exuberant thanksgiving that Paul expresses in these opening verses of Philippians. And yet for many of us, that's something that just seems so rare, something that must have been available only to those in the early church, you know, when they, when they really lived life together and suffered together and when they weren't as busy as we all are. I think one of the reasons that our fellowship can seem so weak by comparison is because we think of fellowship primarily in subjective terms. We think of it as something primarily subjective. My fellowship with this person increases and decreases based on a certain set of circumstances. Good conversation, fun at a party, 
so on. But the Bible speaks about believers' fellowship in a way that is primarily objective, an objective reality. James Montgomery Boyce said that fellowship means a sharing in something, a participating in something greater than the people involved and more lasting than the activity of any given moment. When the Bible uses the word, he says, it means being caught up into a communion created by God. See, believers have fellowship with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit, and with each other as a matter of fact. It is objective. And our subjective experience of that objective fellowship is augmented and enhanced by sharing in, by participating in something that's so much more significant and so much more lasting than a fun day at the park together or a nice conversation about the playoffs, as good as those things can be. Our subjective experience of fellowship is augmented and enhanced most deeply by a participation in the ministry of the gospel alongside of one another, by linking arms with one another in gospel ministry. It was that brand of gospel-driven Christian fellowship that, that resulted in the kind of loving and affectionate relationship that could overflow with an opening Thanksgiving like we just read. And so as we return this morning to Paul's letter to the Philippians, we will find that he has something to teach us about the nature of true, biblical, Christian, gospel-driven fellowship. And I've mentioned a couple of times in my previous sermons on Philippians that the main theme of this letter is the gospel. But I mentioned that it's not so much like Romans, a, a def- uh, uh, the exposition of the content of the gospel, or like Galatians, the defense of the gospel in the face of heresy, but more about that Paul's more concerned about the Philippians living consistently with the implications of the gospel. The thesis verse of this entire book is in chapter 1, verse 27. We've said that a couple of times. It's where we find the very first imperative, the very first command in the letter. And that verse reads, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul desires that the Philippians' entire lives be shaped by, be driven by this gospel. And so, we have subtitled the book of Philippians, The the Gospel-Driven Life. And we mentioned that Epaphroditus has traveled from Philippi to Paul to visit him as he is imprisoned and under house arrest in Rome in order to bring him a loving gift of financial support uh, from the Philippian church and then also to minister to his needs. And as you'd expect, along with this financial gift and along with ministering with Paul, he's going to bring news of how things are going in Philippi, the goings-on of the church. And, and as he prepares to go back, because Paul wants to send him back so that the Philippians know that he's okay, even though he came close to death, it says in chapter 2, he's all right, and he's going to send them back to them. And when he sends them back, he's going to send them with this letter to the Philippians in which he's going to take some time to address some of the more concerning issues that Epaphroditus brought up to him. But Paul doesn't lead with those corrections in his letter. He, he sets whatever concerns he, he does have in the light and in the context of his great love and affection for the Philippian church. 
He grounds his exhortation and his correction in the objective fellowship that they share and enjoy with one another as fellow Christians united to Christ by a common faith. Paul begins his letter by making explicit that he's writing to them as a slave of Christ. He's not lording his apostleship over the Philippians. He doesn't write as a master, but as a fellow slave in submission to the common master that they share, Jesus Christ. And he also identifies the Philippians as saints in Christ, those who are set apart by God and for God by means of their union with the Savior. And so right off the bat, Paul is distilling the essence of the Christian life, the Christian identity into uh, compact form. They are slaves of Christ and they are saints in Christ. And then he distills the essence of the Christian message for them as well. If that's the Christian life, what is the Christian message? In miniature, he, it's grace and peace. He grounds their relationship in the grace that comes to them, that has come to them from the Father in the person of Jesus Christ, and also in the resultant peace that with God and with each other that flows from that grace. And so having begun his letter in this way, reminding the Philippians of their Christian identity and as slaves and saints and bringing to mind this glorious gospel by which they experience the forgiveness of sins, the, the fellowship with God and the person of Jesus Christ, the joy of the Holy Spirit, it's no wonder that Paul's heart is so full, so full of love and affection for his brothers and sisters in Christ in Philippi. His heart has been shaped has been driven by the gospel and, it's, and the gospel's application to him and to his friends. Yes, he has issues to address. He will need to remind them, exhort them, instruct them, command them about certain problems they're facing. But that loving confrontation doesn't precede his sincere expression of thankfulness for the bond of their relationship. And it is that affectionate love and thanksgiving, that deep bond and true fellowship between Paul and the Philippians that is the subject of our message this morning. In our time together this morning, we're going to discover that the three characteristics of Paul's thankfulness for the Philippians comprise three marks of gospel-driven fellowship. Three marks of gospel-driven fellowship. Three results that the faithful Christian experiences in relationship to other believers if indeed that Christian is experiencing true biblical Christian fellowship. But before we look at the characteristics of Paul's thanksgiving, we need to appreciate his thanksgiving itself. Verse 3 begins simply with, I thank my God. I thank my God. See, verses 3 to 8 make up one long sentence in the Greek, and that is often Paul's custom to begin his letters this way. And the first verb here is the main verb. The entire rest of this sentence is an extended commentary on Paul's thanksgiving for the Philippians. How he gives thanks, when he gives thanks, for what he gives thanks, to whom he gives thanks, all sorts of modifiers, but they all come back to this one main point. Paul gives thanks to God for the Philippian believers. And like I said, this was a common practice for Paul, not only to have long sentences, but to have long sentences of thanksgiving. In 11 of 13, 11 out of 13 of his letters, after he gives his opening greeting, he begins with thanksgiving to God for the church that he's writing to. 
And that's fitting because as Paul himself would say in 2 Corinthians 4.15, that the giving of thanks abounds to the glory of God. And of course, that was at the center and heart of all of his affections was the glory of God. And so he gave thanks. It's fitting because he, as he tells us in Romans 1.21, that a principal way of giving God honor, honoring him as God, is to give him thanks. To give him thanks as the all-sufficient provider and giver of all good things. And his thanksgiving is all the more striking when you consider the context in which it came. Mentioned it briefly. Paul is in prison. He is chained to a Roman soldier under house arrest, and he's awaiting a verdict from Nero, of all people, regarding whether or not he's going to live or die. And yet, his thoughts are with the Philippians and are with them often. He's not so much thinking about his own circumstances as about their steadfastness. Not so much about his trials, but about their unity. Not so much about the outcome of his life as the humility of their lives. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer, he says. My God, I like that. Not just I thank God, I thank my God. This is evidence of this, of a deep intimacy and a sincere communion with the Lord that characterized Paul's time even in prison. And that only makes perfect sense because his thankful spirit and his joy survived even in these most difficult of circumstances because they did not depend on those circumstances, but on his union and on his communion with the Father in the person of Christ. Paul hasn't forgotten the circumstances of his own trials. If he was ever tempted to do that, all he'd have to do is move the wrong way and he would feel the tug of the shackles that he's chained to this Roman soldier. And he certainly didn't forget the Philippians' need for humility and unity, for steadfastness and joy. He's about to write a letter addressing all of those issues. So he clearly sees all the pressures and problems facing the Philippian church. But his vision of the Philippians' And their circumstances is colored by the all-satisfying vision of his God, my God. And so born out of this constant thriving communion with God is his regular inclination to pray. And as he comes to his time as times of prayer, he says he always remembers the Philippians. And as he remembers them, he prays for them. And as he prays for them, he thanks God for them. Paul gives thanks. And that thanksgiving is characterized by our first mark of gospel-driven fellowship. Number one, joy. Joy. Look at verses three and four again. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. The word order in, in the Greek is emphatic. Paul is especially emphasizing the phrase with joy. It's what covers all of his prayers of thanksgiving. Colors. Did I say covers? It's what colors all of his prayers of thanksgiving. When he remembers the Philippians, which, as we said, was, was often, and when he prays for them like the good spiritual father that he is, his memories of them are laced with fondness and affection, and that leads him to pray and give thanks with joy. And joy is at the heart of Paul's message in Philippians. This is the first of 16 occurrences of the word rejoice or joy in this letter, which means he, he mentions joy or rejoicing on an average of four times per chapter. 
That's often frequent. And that emphasis on joy only makes sense because joy is the centerpiece of all Christian experience. After all, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, right? David spoke of joy as the defining characteristic of Yahweh's salvation in Psalm 51 when he said, Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Jesus told the disciples that the designed end of all his speaking to them was their joy, John 15, 11. He says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. I speak, John 15, 11, so that your joy would be made full. Elsewhere, Paul describes the kingdom of God as righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 17. And commentator Gordon Fee hits the nail on the head when he writes this, joy lies at the heart of the Christian experience of the gospel. It is the fruit of the Spirit in any truly Christian life, serving as primary evidence of the Spirit's presence. And Paul is saying, whenever I remember you, Philippians, I always pray for you and I always offer thanksgiving for all of you with joy. And notice, Paul isn't playing favorites. He, know, he knows that one of the great struggles that's faith, facing the Philippian congregation is issues of disunity. And so to, he, makes, he wants to make sure that they know they're all on equal footing in his heart. Look at verse 4. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Throughout these opening eight verses, I wonder if you picked it up when I read it, Paul repeats the word all five times. So aside from here in verse 4, you have to all the saints in Christ Jesus, verse 1. Verse 7, it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. And at the end of the verse, you all are partakers of grace with me. Verse 8, I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's not playing favorites. He's trying to foster and engender unity even in the way that he talks about praying for them. His joy is not within a select few or for an elite, but for all of them. And so we conclude that the, the privilege of ministering to the Philippians by interceding in prayer for each of them, well, it, that, that it was a delight for him. It delighted his heart to go before the throne of grace on behalf of his treasured friends to take their needs and requests and cares and to cast them at the feet of the Christ who cares for them. Can the same be said of you? Do you delight to engage in the ministry of intercession on behalf of your brothers and sisters? James Mont Montgomery Boyce, all, just uses a great commentary on this book. He has some great uh, insights. So I'll quote him often. But he says, at this point, he says, I believe that 90% of all the divisions between true believers in this world, true believers, would disappear entirely if Christians would learn to pray specifically and constantly for one another. Imagine that. 90% of all divisions gone. If we would really commit to praying and constantly praying and enduringly praying, not like I prayed for him one Sunday and then it's over, but that we'd be in each other's hearts and we'd pray sincerely, interceding. So one question to ask is, do you pray? That question alone for some of us is enough to convict us. But when you do pray, do you intentionally remember your brothers and sisters in your Bible study, in grace life, in other areas of ministry? 
Paul said that he gave thanks for all of the Philippians with joy. And I take that to mean that there was a systematic and intentional way of thinking about each and every one of them. That's one of the reasons we want to do this photo directory, is so that we can have everybody, their face right there, an, an opportunity to just pray right through that thing. That's what I hope to do. I hope that's what your plan is too. It'll be a real tangible tool for systematically interceding for one another. And when you do remember your brothers and sisters in prayer, do you remember them with thankfulness for God's work in their lives? You know, what God is doing, instead of remembering, you know, your fellow believers and immediately thinking of the negative things like, oh, oh boy, I got some praying to do. No, but does being reminded of them cause you to give thanks to the Lord for His work in their lives? Because if they're truly a believer, God is working in their lives. That's reason for thanksgiving for the work that God has done in them and will do in them. And then does that thankfulness cause you to well up with joy in Christ? It's one thing to do the duty of prayer and intercession. It's one thing to do the duty of giving God his due by giving thanks. But, it's, but it, our theology must lead to doxology, the reality that God is actually conforming people to Christ's image in our midst is amazing and it should cause us to rejoice. It must cause us to thank God for our fellow believers with joy. You know, I imagine it as the Philippians read this portion of the letter, the beginning of the letter, and they learned about Paul's joyful thanksgiving on their behalf. I bet they thought to themselves something like, you know, man, he really cares for us. He, he's really praying for us. Are there people that you think of that you have in your life when you hear that? People that you know are praying for you? Or how about, are there people that think of you when they hear that? Or when your name comes into their mind that the fir their first thought is, he really cares for me. She's really praying for me. I know that. See, there's, there's work to do, friends. If we're going to be living life together, if we're going to be the church together in this place, we need to cultivate that kind of fellowship with one another, that kind of joyful thanksgiving and prayer for one another. But you say, what if I don't feel that kind of joyful thanks? Where does that kind of thing come from? What's the source of that thanksgiving that's characterized by joy? Take a look again with me at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. You see, Paul says this joyful thanksgiving comes in view of, because of the Philippians' participation in the gospel. That's the Greek word koinonia, the one that often gets translated fellowship. But participation is a good translation for it in this context because, again, true fellowship is more than just a, a having things in common. It's a participation in something. That which undergirds Paul's thanks and joy for the Philippians is the objective fellowship that they participate in by virtue of the gospel. And the Philippians' participation in the gospel encompasses multiple things. First of all, it means that they're believers, they're saved, they're truly Christians. You know, Paul and, and the Philippians are fellow partakers of the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. And for the Christian, that's enough. That is the bedrock of all of our foundation, uh, sorry, the bedrock foundation of all of our relationships with one another. 
Our friendships with other Christians are not based most foundationally upon common interests or shared hobbies or the fact that we're in the same stage in life or whether we're part of this, from the same part of the country or the same part of the world. It's based on the objective reality that all who are one with Christ are one with each other. We are united to him as our living head and therefore are united to each other as his body. And so the Philippians' participation in the gospel, the, the result of which was joyful thanksgiving, meant, first of all, that, that they and Paul shared a common bond in Christ. This is impossible outside of Christ. But it meant more than that. It was also that they were ministry-minded. Paul mentions their participation in the gospel from the first day until now. It doesn't make sense if that's just salvation from the first day until now. He's referring to the Philippians' unique commitment to the ministry of the gospel that has characterized them from Paul's first dealings with them 12 years earlier, all the way up to the present day. At the very beginning of the church in Philippi, when, when Lydia got saved, the very first thing she did was to implore Paul and the others, please, if you've judged me worthy, come stay in my house. You see, the Lord opened her heart, and that dear woman opened her home as a result. And Acts 16.40 tells us that Lydia's house even became a sort of base of operations for the church in Philippi. Her home was where the church met. Immediately, salvation issues in this, this desire to be instrumental in the, in the advance of the gospel. Same thing with the jailer. He falls on his face. What must I do to be saved? Immediately, the first thing he does is to wash Paul and Silas's wounds. And then to invite them into his house and to set food before them, it says in Acts 16, 33 and 34. You see, from the very first day, the Philippian salvation manifested itself in a concern that they be used by God in strategic and instrumental ways for the proclamation and advance of the gospel. And that concern for gospel ministry resulted in, third, their continued support. They're saved, they're ministry-minded, and they're continuing to support the Apostle Paul in a unique way. Turn with me just briefly to Philippians chapter 4, just a few pages over. Chapter 4, verse 15. Paul writes about this unique ministry that they had for him. He, he says, verse 15, you, know, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. See, immediately after Paul left them, they were ministering to him financially. Thessalonica was the very next stop on Paul's missionary journey after Philippi, and it didn't even take him that long for them to send a gift on, to get him on his way. They were all in from the beginning. And they continued to give sacrificially until that very day. I mean, the whole point of Epaphroditus' visit was to send along this financial gift. And along with that financial support came the, the personal and spiritual support that Epaphroditus could minister to Paul personally. And then in chapter 1, Philippians 1, verses, uh, verse 19, he talks about that he knows that his deliverance or his... Uh, Circumstances will turn out for his deliverance through your prayers, he says. So the Philippians are ministering to him financially, they're ministering to him personally and spiritually, and they're ministering to him through prayer. So he is joyfully thankful for them, for their participation in the gospel. And finally, not only were the Philippians saved, ministry-minded, continually supportive of Paul, they also engaged in gospel ministry themselves. 
See, they proclaimed the gospel in Philippi like Paul taught them to do. They, they had to withstand the dangers of false teaching and speak out against it as Paul would equip them to do in chapter 3. See, they, they knew, they had to, they, when they had to suffer also in the path of obedience, chapter 1, verse 29, it's been granted to you to believe in him and also to suffer for his sake. So they knew it wasn't in, just enough to support those who were willing to do the work, but that they had to do the work themselves. See, Paul could joyfully give thanks for the Philippians in sincerity, not only because of their support of him, which was great, but also because they were actually carrying out the work of the ministry themselves. They were ministering alongside Paul. They were brothers in arms in the cause of Christ. You see, this is where such deep love and affection come from. We all desire that kind of relationship with each other that we observe between Paul and the Philippians. Chapter 1, verses 3 to 8, I long for you all, but God is my witness with the affection of Christ Jesus. But Paul says that comes from the fellowship, the participation in the ministry of the gospel. You see, nothing has the ability to knit Christian hearts together like laboring alongside someone in the trenches of gospel ministry. Supporting one another, participating in this same ministry arm in arm. The greatest Christian fellowship is forged in the furnace of common affliction, suffered in the path of advancing the gospel. I'm going to say that again. The greatest Christian fellowship is forged in the furnace of common affliction, suffered in the path of advancing the gospel. If your fellowship is weak, what are you doing to get in that furnace? What are you doing to get in those trenches to enliven and invigorate that fellowship? Just a minute ago, I used the, the metaphor of brothers in arms. I've been saying the word trenches. We understand this reality because it's the idea of being a, a soldier bonded like in the military. Elsewhere, Paul describes the Christian life as fellow soldiers engage, engaging in a common spiritual battle. And that bond that is forged between fellow soldiers, even in a human level for the nation, is so strong. When you're fighting in combat together, living your lives together, risking your lives together, encouraging one another after defeat and rejoicing with one another after victory, there is nothing like it that creates such an emotional, relational bond between people. Fellow soldiers become family, band of brothers, right? No wonder Paul calls the Philippians brothers six times in this epistle. 112, 31, 313, 317, chapter 4, verse 1. They're, they're brothers in arms. They're a band of brothers united in the common battle for the faith of the gospel. And so if you desire those experiences of true gospel-driven fellowship, of a true, unfeigned, joyful thanksgiving for your brothers and sisters, make sure that you're participating in the gospel of Christ. Not just as a believer, not just by coming to church, not just by sitting in Grace Life as thankful as we are that you're here, putting on a smile, saying hello to a few people, moving on to the next Sunday morning, stop. Pick up the kids, go to Grace Walk, get the seat early in the, in the sanctuary. The Philippians met Paul's physical needs. And you can't meet physical needs of people if you don't know what those needs are. And you can't know what the needs are unless you know the people. And that's going to take more than, hi, 
How are you? Oh, praise the Lord. Well, God bless you. Have a good week. That's not going to cut it. The kind of fellowship that brings joyful thanksgiving requires that we roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty. Sheep are messy. And I ask you this morning, are you willing to do it? A question for reflection later on on the Lord's day and throughout the week. Am I willing to roll up my sleeves and get my hands dirty with people? Sometimes mean people. Sometimes weird people. We need it. So gospel-driven fellowship is marked first by a joyful thanksgiving, by joy. But it's also marked by a confident thanksgiving. We see the second characteristic of Paul's thanksgiving in verse 6, confidence, confidence. I know that many of the translations, I think just about all of them, begin a new sentence in verse 6. In the NAS, you'll see the italics indicates that the words aren't really there. But the Greek, it just continues. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, confident of this very thing. Confident, key word. It, it denotes being confident, persuaded, convinced, and even certain Paul's deep appreciation and thanksgiving for the Philippians is marked not only by joy in view of their participation in the gospel, but also by confidence concerning their destiny. But where does that confidence come from? Upon what is this confidence grounded? Is it the Philippians themselves? Their work, their faith, their labor of love, their being good gospel partners? No, the entirety of their participation in the gospel that he just spoke about in verse 5 is not most deeply the work of the Philippians, but the work of God in the Philippians. Paul says he is confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. Confident that he will do it, not you. Paul's saying, as I reflect on your labor of love, on your participation in the gospel from the first day of, until now, I'm convinced that you have truly known the grace of, of God and you're united to Christ by faith. And because of that, I'm confident, I'm persuaded, I'm convinced that this work of salvation that has manifested itself in good deeds from the first day until now will be perfected and carried to completion until the return of Christ. Because, and here's the key, because both are a work of God. And God finishes what he starts. That's where the hope comes from. That's where the confidence comes from. Paul says that it was God who began a good work in the Philippians. Salvation is a, a sovereign work of God. He began the good work in you. We, I mean, this is everywhere. Lydia, certainly the Philippians knew it. Their first convert, Lydia, says in Acts 16, 14, that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul, and then she believed. Sovereign act of God. He would say it in chapter 1, verse 29 as well, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake to believe in him. It has been granted. Acts eleven eighteen. God grants repentance that leads to life. James 1, 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. 
And who can forget Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so Paul argue, Paul's argument goes, God is the one who began the work of salvation. And so it will be God who, who perfects it until the final day. Just as God is sovereign in salvation or conversion, he is sovereign in sanctification. And I want you to, to turn with me this time to a couple of passages to underscore this because there is a lot of confusion about the topic of sanctification. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll look at a few verses close concert. If you haven't already lost the page, keep a finger in Philippians. But 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's just an excellent chapter. Memorize 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's one of the best chapters in the Old New Testament. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. One's better than the other, but it's ministered to me in, in unique ways. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's look at the last verse in the chapter, verse 18. Paul says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Beholding, we are being transformed. See, both components are there. We have a role to play. Paul tells us that our role is to behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice the voice of the verb. Voice, active, passive voice. We, when we behold the glory of Christ, we are being, passive, transformed. So the question is, who's the agent of that action? If we are being transformed, who's doing the transforming? It's God. It's God. Turn one book over to the right to Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 3. Paul asks, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What's the implied answer? No. If you've been regenerated and saved by the Holy Spirit, then you will be perfected by that same Spirit. You say, well, well hey, don't I have any role at all? Well, the answer to that is, is yes, but not the decisive role. Turn back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. We know this verse well. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You say, aha, it's up to me. Keep reading. Verse 13, for the ground, the basis, the reason for your work, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see? The reason why we work, the ground of putting our hand to the plow of effort in our sanctification and our pursuit of holiness is not because we're going to sanctify ourselves by our clenched fists and our gritted teeth. It's because God is working in us the obedience with, 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 that we must work out. The believer's perseverance is grounded in the Father's preservation the believer's perseverance is grounded in the Father's preservation. And so God has begun a good work in the Philippians, and it is God's work to complete it. And here's the point. This is why Paul can have the confidence he does about Philippians. God finishes what he starts. 
See, God is not like us. You know, we start a project and, you know, we get distracted and so we leave it half done for six months and in the process we've started five other projects that we don't finish. That's us. But God isn't like that. God never lacks the wisdom or the power to bring all of his plans and projects to completion. You know, this is, this is really interesting. In Luke chapter 14, you don't have to turn there, but Luke 14, 28 to 30, Jesus tells that story about discipleship, about counting the cost, right? About the, counting the cost of, a, of uh, the, the building a tower. And his illustration, though it's not intended for this, it sheds light on this a little bit. Listen to this. Jesus says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Here's the key. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and he's not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. And Paul tells us that God never fears that ridicule because he always has sufficient resources to finish what he's begun. And so if you're here this morning and you're confident that you're saved, but you live in, in a fear, a sort of semi-fear that one day you might do something wrong enough to lose your salvation. Oh, I know that I can't, it can't be taken away from me, but I could lose it. It's, you know, that people say sometimes. Let me tell you with all the confidence and the certainty of the inspired word of God itself, that will not happen. God would never allow himself to be shamed in that way by not finishing what he starts. He will never subject himself to that ridicule. My father, says Jesus, is greater than all, John 10, and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. God means to get the glory of finishing what he starts. So the perseverance of the saints that is grounded in the father's preservation of the believer, that's a, a marvelous truth, a doctrine that should cause us all to rejoice. But let's not forget that this verse comes in a context, in the context of Paul's thanksgiving to the Philippians. See, in this passage, the believer's eternal security is designed to cause other believers to rejoice in confident thanksgiving at the prospect of the sure salvation of their brothers and sisters. Eternal security is a wonderful truth. It gives me all sorts of confidence in my fight of faith. I can't be lost. Strength to fight sin. But here, one of the most common verses for uh, perseverance of the saints is talking about the perseverance of other saints. It's there to give you confidence in your fellow Christians, to give thanks for them with confidence and joy. Let's not miss that. You know, we can look at some of our fellow brothers and sisters in this room at the level of the sanctification that they're at right now, and we can tend to let their lack of progress and immaturity harden our hearts toward them. It's not that difficult to find that happening to yourself. Oh my goodness, she is so conceited. Oh my, my that, that guy is so arrogant. I can't believe how rude she just was to me. And how easy is it after experiencing the faults, the true faults of fellow Christians in real time to then write those people off and have a chip on your shoulder? There are a lot of people in this room. You could go a long time without seeing that person again and nobody would be the wiser of it. You over there could be mad at you over there and we have no idea about it at all because we could hide from that from each other. But, but Paul doesn't think about those things. 
Paul doesn't look at the failures of the here and now without taking 10 looks to their glorification in the day of Christ. See, the doctrines of preservation and perseverance of the saints should lead us to, to view our brothers and sisters in the light of the fact that one day they will be perfectly conformed to, conformed to the image of Christ's glory. That's going to change the way you interact with people. That's going to change the way you think about people. It's a, it's a confidence-producing thing that will produce a thankfulness and a joy that characterizes your fellowship with one another. Well, we've seen that Paul's thankfulness for the Philippians has been characterized both by joy and by confidence, and that these experiences are also marks of a true biblical Christian fellowship, marks that if we don't have, we're in trouble and need to start working to experience those. But we come finally now to the third mark of gospel-driven fellowship, affection, affection, Let's read verses 7 and 8. Paul says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Can you hear it? Oozing out of those verses, the love and affection that he has for these people. Even just how many times you hear the second person pronoun, I don't know if you catch that, but it makes this it's so intensely personal. It's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since you all are partakers of grace with me. God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's two verses, four times, second person pronoun, that's a lot. He's just gushing. And he says it's only right. It's only right in view of my joy on the basis of our fellowship in the gospel and in view of my confidence of, in your coming glorification, it is only right for me to have this intense yearning and sincere affection for all of you. And the term that's translated right is the Greek word dikaios. It's the main word for righteousness. And you see, you, to feel this way about each other is not just icing on the cake for believers. It's not doesn't belong to the super spiritual or the super committed. It's morally obligatory, Paul says. It is right, which means it's wrong if you don't have it. If it's right to feel this way, it's wrong to lack this kind of deep affection for one another. You say, but, but God can't hold me accountable for feeling certain ways. I can't control how I feel. Besides, Christianity is not about emotions anyway. Wrong on all counts, my friend. You, that is not at all true. Love and joy, two concepts that, that top the list of the fruit of the Spirit, have very much to do with the emotions. They're not just emotions. They're not merely emotions. There's more to love and joy than feelings, but they're certainly not less. And it's not quite right to say that Christianity isn't about emotions. Much of your character can be examined in the light of what kind of feelings you are experiencing. As Jonathan Edwards has famously written, true religion consists much in holy affections. It's true that the Christian life is not governed by emotions, but spiritual health and Christian character sure is discovered by emotions. We need to cultivate this affection for one another. 
Paul says, it's only right for me to feel this way because I have you in my heart. He's saying our hearts are knit together. You are, as it were, joined together in the very fabric of my soul, in the essence of my being, united to me. Even though we're physically separated by a great distance, I still have you here with me. See, the koinonia, the fellowship that they shared in the ministry of the gospel produced this kind of intense connection. They supported him in his, in his imprisonment, he says, even when it would have been easier and safer and less shameful, at least in the eyes of the world, to abandon him. They put themselves in danger. Epaphroditus almost dies. Then he's going to go and he's going to identify himself to the Romans, the rulers of the known world, in the Praetorian Guard, that he is a friend of this subversive prisoner. So that even if Paul, I mean, Paul could get executed and Epaphroditus is saying, here am I, look at my face, I'm with this guy. That's sincere connection. They, they supported him, stood with him in his imprisonment. And both, he says, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, not only when Paul's in prison, they also supported him when he was out of prison, defending the gospel against accusation and attacks and proclaiming, establishing the gospel with, with solemn testimony and forthright declaration. The Philippians stood by him as his fellow saints and fellow slaves and fellow soldiers. And the consequence of that participation, that partnership in the ministry of the gospel produced this deep, loving, affectionate bond. It was that commitment that produces that result that we all desire. This true Christ-like fellowship that you can read with your own eyes in this passage is a result of ministerial companionship. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The word affection is splachnois. It's the word for bowels or inward parts. It's the word used when Judas fell in Acts 1. They talk about Judas falling and his splachnois was exploded all out all over the place. His intestines. Sounds a little strange, but... It, it's, it's, he's saying, my love and affection for you is so deep, I can feel it in my stomach. And we can relate to that a little bit. We understand that sometimes, you know, if something really distressing and sad happens, we can lose our appetite. Really bad news make, can make some people nauseous. Or to turn it in a, on a positive direction, if someone is love-struck and giddy and happy, we say sometimes that I have butterflies in my stomach. There is that relationship there. And Paul says, I think of you and I remember our partnership in the ministry of the gospel and I think of your coming glorification when God perfects this good work in you and I long to be reunited with you all so much so that I can feel it in my bowels. I love you with all the affection of Christ himself. And I just want to ask you, do you, do you speak to each other this way? I mean, not the bowels thing, but... <laughs> What would be a, a commonly accepted, culturally ad adapted, updated version of that? Do you speak to each other with this kind of earnestness? When was the last time you said something like this to a brother or to a sister? Now, Paul isn't embarrassed to speak this way. Paul's a man. He's a manly man. This dude got whipped, beaten, stoned, driven out of a night and a day in the deep. He was a man. And he wasn't embarrassed to talk this way. It's not macho to squelch these feelings. That's what true manliness is all about. The gravity of, his, of this union with the Philippians demands 
that he speaks this way. And so as you live life together with fellow believers, your fellow workers and fellow soldiers, don't squelch this kind of affection under superficiality and, and perpetual levity. You always got to tell a joke, you know. Tell, tell jokes, enjoy life, my goodness. But if, it's, if that's all you're doing is always telling, you're around, I know people like that. I mean, you've, you've had people like that where it's like you try to say hello to them and you're trying to move deeper and all it is is, hey, you see those that game? Oh boy, well, he really got clocked. And it's just, everything is just perpetual levity. Levity is okay, but bring it to the gravity more than you bring it to the levity. Have that real intense communion with each other. Let that breathe. Like I've said, this joy, confidence, and affection that characterizes Paul's thanksgiving to the Philippians, all of this is born out of a true and living, gospel-driven fellowship with other members of the body of Christ. And I read these opening verses of Philippians about having believers in my heart and longing for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. I think about specific people. I hope you do too just treasured friends that I've labored alongside of and suffered alongside of in the ministry of the gospel. People that I've been, by God's grace, in the trenches with. Are there people who think of you? I'm sorry, are there people that you think of when you read this passage, long for all the affection of Christ Jesus? Oh yeah, that's Joe. That's James. That's Barbara. And let me be more specific. Are there people that you think of in this room that, that you have that thought, those thoughts about when you read, these, read this passage? See, it could be that we have somebody far off in a distant land in a memory from years gone by that we could think of, oh, yes, you know, 30 years ago, I remember this person was, we were united together. We were really fighting, laboring for the gospel. But there, it needs to be now. There need to be people in this room that you can see and think, oh, I, I just, I have them in my heart. I long for you with the affection of Christ. My bowels yearn to be with that person. They need to be here. If they're not, they need to be. I'm aware that that kind of thing doesn't just happen overnight. I mean, a bond like the Paul and the Philippians shared takes months and years of laboring and striving and standing together. But you need to be cultivating that. You need to be working toward that. And if you haven't been, no better time to start than now. And if you have been, but you've been a bit lax, ramp it up. This is what life is about. I mean, really, this is what life in the church is about. So what does gospel ministry look like for you right here, right now? For some of you, it looks like finally committing to regularly attending a Bible study in midweek to finally come out of the shadows of a 300-person group and really get to know a small group of believers who can keep you accountable under the oversight of pastoral leadership. For some of you, it looks like really investing in the relationships that you've begun at that Bible study. You do the hi, how are you thing at the Bible study too. Okay, see you next week. But really taking time, even outside the Bible study. How about on the off week? It's usually second and fourth or first and third. Take the, the off week and pick somebody Meet with them. Go deeper. Confess your sin to one another. Hold each other accountable. Having, have those difficult conversations with one another. 
For some of you, it looks like serving the families even outside of Grace Life by serving once every six weeks or two months in, in, in the nursery. That's a huge deal right now. A lot of changes coming, and you could be a true benefit to a lot of folks by doing that. If you're thinking about that, let me encourage you to go ahead and do it. For some of you, it means sitting next to different people. We, Paul Ackerman talked about last week. You know, being intentional about getting to know them, changing sides of the room, or just sitting next to somebody. I mean, we're, this room is set up for a 1,000 college students, and we have a lot of empty seats, you know, and there's a lot of room in between. Everybody likes the end. But sit next to each other. Talk to one another. Make sure it's the same person for a month. Get to know them. Be intentional. For some of you, it means inviting that person that you spoke with last week out to lunch after church or through in the middle of the week or maybe over to your house for dinner sometime in the middle of the week. Just get to know them. Learn how to pray for them better. Let them know how to pray for you. For some of you, it means attending one of our local outreach ministries. And here I'll plug this as the local outreach pastor. Um, you need to, we, we have, I think, 25 different ways that you can take the gospel to the lost as already started and, you know, as a program here and more that people do all throughout on their own without me knowing about it, it's just glorious. So whether it's maybe in getting involved in neighborhood outreach or going to the assisted living community or taking the gospel to Skid Row or preaching in the jails or going to the Acton Rehab Center or just another way of being intentional about taking the gospel to the lost in your own lives, that's ministry of the gospel. That's participation in the gospel is preaching that gospel to those who are lost and need the Savior in need of life. It falls to you and me to do that. Nobody else is going to do that. And for some of you, an increased commitment to ministry means an increased commitment to supporting the missionaries, thinking about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth globally. You could decide, hey, I, you know, I could do more than I, I pledged for faith promise. Or I can remember that I actually pledged something for faith promise and get that in there. And for all of us, whatever the myriad ways, the hard thing is when you do applications like that is you always miss somebody, maybe. Hopefully I didn't miss anybody there. That's a pretty broad spectrum. But, but for all of us, for every one of us, increased participation in the gospel, ministry to one another, laboring alongside one another means at the very least that we make it a priority to regularly pray for one another here in Grace Life to pray for one another's growth in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the, the sanctification, the Spirit's continuing work of conforming us to his image, and to pray for each other with, with joy, with confidence, and with affection. So let's do that now. Oh, Father, I pray with joy for this dear group in view of their participation in the gospel as they have done faithfully from the first day until now. What a joy it is to be able to reflect on this congregation and exhort them, not out of a desire to, you know, get them in line, but to, to rejoice with them that all it's going to take is this reminder to do the things that they are already doing, to excel still more. I give you thanks for this group with joy and with confidence as that, that labor has manifested itself as evidence of that salvation, the participation in the gospel, that they are partakers of grace with me, my brothers and my sisters. I'm confident that however difficult they might be, however difficult person to person, sheep to sheep might get, that I can view them in the light of their coming glorification. And I give thanks to you for them with affection, with all the 
the, the affection and yearning of the bowels of Christ Jesus himself, the compassion that was unique to the Savior, to the God-man, the love of Christ compels my affectionate thanks for these folks. May we all do this always. May we be like Paul, ministering thanksgiving and joy to the Philippians, but with each other constantly. It is a privilege and it is oh so necessary in our walk and our battle against sin. We pray that you would speed the day of our glorification, perfect us in the radiance of Christ's glory. We long to be done with sin. So we pray that you would come, Lord Jesus, and receive to yourself your own and the kingdom that it rightly belongs to you. In the meantime, get what you are worthy of from your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.